Hello, everyone. This is Prince Shakur, and welcome to another episode of the Creative Hour podcast. This is season three. And on this episode, I am very excited to present a really amazing person that I've been able to talk to a lot since moving to New York. William O'Neill II is a playwright from South Georgia. O'Neill writes plays that include teens with trauma, irreverence, magical realism, sex, and scenes where people have existential crises while sitting next to large bodies of water. I can easily say that one of the reasons I love this podcast is being able to talk to people that I respect, who have a lot of ideas about their craft and their art making practice, people that mine their experiences really intensely in order to make the art that they do. And having known Will for the past few months and reading a lot of their writing and work, I think so many people can benefit from a lot of the things that they explore in their artwork and a lot of the things that they think about in relation to storytelling. And a lot of that is in this conversation, but we also dive really deep into one particular topic. Um, so in this episode of The Creative Hour, I will talk to O'Neill about the power of coming of age narratives, the sick kid genre as a narrative in film, about their thematic fascination with cannibalism their history as a playwright. And we talk about a number of different movies, but we mainly dive into Bones and All, Infinity Pool. And this is just a note for the Creative Hour podcast. Even though we delve a lot into cannibalism on a thematic and storytelling level, this podcast by no means condones cannibalism. <laughs> because the last half an hour, spoiler alert, we talk a lot about that um, and where Will's interest is in consumption, desire, sex, kind of the violence and the sort of excitement and unexpectedness of coming of age and how that relates to how cannibalism is showing up more in cinema these days. So please enjoy this episode. I love this conversation and I can't wait for all of you to hear it. As for some updates for me, I am still teaching. I've been doing a lot of travel for my book. I just got back from Indiana last week. Two weeks ago, I was in Seattle before that. I was in Toronto before that. I was in North Carolina. And I'm also traveling again soon to act in a short film that I wrote. So we're staying busy. So thank you again for listening. And please smash that like button, leave ratings and comments, share the podcast with people that you know. Every little bit helps. And I appreciate having this space so much to talk to different kinds of artists. And I thank everyone for listening. So please enjoy this episode of The Creative Hour. So welcome to the podcast, Will. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. How's your day going? Good. I woke up really late today, showered, got ready, and then walked over here. I did not mean to sleep in that late, but you know, it is what it is. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, what your family is like, what your upbringing was like? Uh, my name is William. Uh, William O'Neill II. I'm named after my father. Speaking of my father and my family, um, I have one sister. She's younger than I am. Um, my mom and dad are together and live in the same house still. Um, we have a dog. My dad is a pastor. My mom is also like assistant pastor slash works for Delta. Um, and I am a playwright. I studied, well, first I went to an all private Christian school for 13 years. That's my dad. My dad's a pastor. <laughs> um, I am no longer considering myself a Christian, but I did go to there for 13 years. And then I went to Florida State to study at the film school, um, the school that Barry Jenkins went to, which is really cool. Oh. 
Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, he graduated from there. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then I transferred after two years from there to Emory University in Atlanta um, and finished my degree in playwriting. So that was my formal education of um, writing and art okay. and all that. When did making art enter your life or when did you start thinking of yourself as an artist? I think those are two separate answers. I think art entered my life when I was really young, probably late elementary, early middle school. I considered myself an artist really probably when I went to college, Mm. but I started in poetry in high school. I took a creative writing class and had a really, really good teacher um, and really opened my eyes to poetry beyond like, you know, Shakespeare and like all the the old What was your poetry about in high school? My what? Your poetry. What was it about in high school? The ones that I would write about? Yeah. Heart crushes and heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's first, like. Damn. Yeah, yeah. I wish I'd known that, that before this because I would have asked you to bring a poem. <laughs> you said you started thinking about art more when you were younger and then you didn't consider yourself an artist until college. Why, why that distinction? Because I think there was a disconnect between art exists and people do art. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds really dumb, but it's like. I never thought I could do it like as a career, like as my as my thing. Okay. Like I enjoyed it and I did it for fun on the side, but I never considered myself an artist. I just think because the comparison was like people who are artists are like so big and they're like huge and they like make all this money or whatever. Um, and I'm not that. And I was in high school. Like what did I know? But yeah, when I went to college and started to really like flex my muscles more and learn my voice and like this is what I want, this is what I'm interested in. Then I was like, okay, like I I'm an artist, but it still took me a while to get there. Like, still part of me, I don't see art as a career for me. Like, I do it as a, in the traditional sense, a career, but I don't see it that way. But yeah, I would say late college when I was like, okay, I am, this is what I do, okay. sort of thing, yeah. How do you see art then, if you don't see it as a career? Um, I see it, I, I think it's definitely important, but when I think of career, I think of like, and I know like with writing, with TV and like with even with playwriting, which is what I do, like if you have a commission, like you're on deadline, right? And they're like, you have to have this by this date and we'll pay you this amount of money. But I don't see myself as if anyone came up to me at any time of the day and they're like, we need this thing. I don't think I produce art in such a consistent way where I can consider it okay. a career in that way. Okay. Like it, when it comes, it comes and it does come often for me. But not always. Okay. Um, I think teaching is a career. I think teaching art is a career. Mm. Because you be passing on your knowledge to like another generation. Like I can come up with lessons every week to teach people. Okay. But I think art is a very, I think it's very spiritual. And I think it's very, I can't, it feels wrong to put that spiritual practice in a career format. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess I'm, then I'm curious, what was studying art in university like? Because I feel like that's such a structured environment. You have all these deadlines, you're expected to produce so much, especially yeah. I feel like in the visual arts when you're studying it, it's like you had a project every fucking every, week. Every week. Yeah. So I I'm, I'm guess I'm wondering, like, did that help you in any way? Did it make you wary of making it your career? How did, how did studying at a university affect how you look at your trajectory and how it shifted yeah. your practice. It did make me weary for sure. I think that's why I have the viewpoint I have now. But like it is true. I think it, those practices and like having a project every week and having deadlines, it does teach you the discipline of the art, which I think is really important. Because I think with raw ideas or inspirations, but with no discipline in which to like follow through, it the discipline makes it the art better. Okay. And so when I was studying it in school, I was like, this is good to learn. But I don't, I, it would just feel wrong to me. Like if someone came to me and they were like, we want to pay you for four plays, right? And they have to be done 
within four years. Mm-hmm. You had a year for each play. I feel like I would not being true to myself because I feel like I would be forcing something. Mm. Um, and I don't like that feeling. Um, but if someone was like, we want a play from you, I okay, let me see what I'm thinking about at the moment. And I'd be like, okay, I have one for you. And then okay. it feels like I'm doing it for myself as well as for them. I think Ocean Blanc talked about this too in an interview that I listened to by them. And they were talking about how like they released their first poetry book and then a publishing company came to them and we were like, we want five books from you. And we'll pay you a large sum of money. Like it was so much money. And they said, no. They were mm. like, I won't do it. They were like, I'll do one. Like I have one for you, but I'm not going to wow. sign a contract for all okay. five, you know? And I think it's because... When the art feels forced, I think it, it's not as good. Defining my writing or art as a career puts that pressure on me. Yeah, I can say I definitely resonate with that in terms of like literally yesterday. I, I think I've mentioned this to you, but I've been working on this article and I had to do all these mm-hmm. rewrites. Mm-hmm. And the editors came back to me and they're like, no, here's your kill fee. And I was yeah. like, I tried. Like, yeah. And so I get it in that sense where it's what does it mean to fall in love with the practice of doing something and then learning to love something when you're young and then coming of age and realizing that the process of being adultified in capitalism basically requires you to make it tangible or quantifiable. And then part of me sometimes wonders with writing, I'm like, oh, is a part of that original spark gone? Or has that spark just changed? Or is this a binary I shouldn't even be asking myself? But, But I guess I wonder... What do you think about that? Like, do you think there's a part of your practice or the way that you loved art that you had when you were younger that you don't have anymore? Do you feel like something is intrinsically Mm. lost as you transition into being an adult and finding a way to to have it be a part of how you sustain yourself as an adult? Or is that kind of a a trap of a question? I don't think it's a trap. (laughs) Maybe it's a little bit of a trap. I think it's important to protect the spark Mm -hmm. um, that you were talking about. And I think it's definitely a temptation a fear and a, a threat. Like when you grow up, first of all, you're losing your like, I mean, as a writer, I, I think it's a goal to not use the kid like childlike part of you. I think writing mm-hmm. is an exercise in trying not to do that. But it, de- it definitely takes more protection and practice not to lose that spark when you actually enter the art world on a business side too. Yeah. Right. Um, one, because of all the comparison and everyone is trying to like make money or like be the best at this thing. It's become like a competitive thing. And then two, people or people in the industry, or I'll specifically talk about the play industry or film industry, want you to write towards an audience, right? Mm. They're like, if you don't fit into an audience, we can't sell this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they put you in boxes, right? They put you in a, you are a, say, queer black writer who, da 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 you know, they put you in this thing. Yeah. And I think, I think specificity in art is important as, as the writer because specificity breeds honesty and honesty is what? quote unquote sells and mm-hmm. people like so it is important to bring your life experiences into it but yeah it's definitely hard as an adult be so joyful and excited about a one particular thing as you were like a kid mm-hmm. because now you're thinking about all these other things and i think me not defining my writing as a career is just a way in language for me to help protect myself from that okay because it's like i just do it because i have to and i need to and it's what's inside me and if, and then if you want it and you want to buy it, it's like, yeah, like I'll make money from it. That makes sense. To your point, um, and maybe it's because I'm researching a lot about the moral responsibility of the artist by James Baldwin, right. but it's making me think a lot about how people make art for different reasons and yeah. those different reasons guide how they show up in their career. Because like when I hear you talk, I'm like, oh, it seems it's relatively like deeply emotional for you. And, it, yeah. And, and it's not necessarily about name dropping all these vague films and 
playwrights and shit to make other people feel like shit. Right. I you. can do that too, though. Okay. <laughs> I okay. Okay. Sorry, I prejudged you. <laughs> yeah. My other question was, I kind of wanted to shift to, so you went to... Florida State and Emory? Yeah. Okay, okay. So can you talk about so poetry, studying film, getting into playwriting, can you talk about how you discovered each of these genres kind of in the timeline of your life? Because I kind of want to give people an idea of like what it's like to get into one kind of art and then into other forms of yeah, it. Because you've yeah. also, since 2020, you've done like a lot of PA work and you've worked on yeah. TV and film sets. So could you kind of just explain... The history of the time. Yeah, the shift yeah, yeah. between those different medium. So I started in poetry. This was in high school. This was my AP Lit class, my junior or senior year. And I also took a creative writing class that same year. So AP Lit was my favorite class. And then I was writing. We had poetry, a poetry unit, a playwriting unit, um, a TV unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would, we would jump between these forms in creative writing. And we, as the class, there were only six of us got to determine what we wanted to talk about mm, um okay. since no one no one really ever signed up for that class and i was like what like but i had always wanted to so i did and that's why i fell in love with writing poetry I and mean, also playwriting to an extent and that was like the first time i was introduced to that and then when senior year came i was like i don't know why i don't know what i want to go to college for um it was research doctor for a long time Research doctor. Yeah, I wanted to be a research it doctor. It wasn't pastor after 13 years? And- <laughs> <laughs> For my dad, it was pastor. And I was getting it. Like, I had preached in church Wait, you wanted to be a researcher for doctor or a doctor? Wait. No, a doctor. A researcher who's a doctor. So basically, you know, like, researching new medicines for different things. Oh, and, like, okay. a doctor who's just, like, his main thing is research. I'm not, like, surgery oh, or anything. okay, okay. Yeah. Hmm. So it was that for a long time. And then I wanted to be a firefighter for a long time. I wanted to be in the military. I wanted to be a Marine. Oh, I forgot about that. Remember, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. He's giving me the side eye right now. But yeah, I wanted to be a Marine. No, I, like, the reason I'm giving you the side eye is because when you <laughs> mentioned this the first time, you wouldn't stop talking about it for the next 45 minutes. And I'm like, okay, we get it. <laughs> yeah, because because I took the entry test and everything. I was like, let me see how long I can, how fast it takes me to run a mile and how many push-ups can I do? And so, like, I did the, and my mom was like, no. <laughs> she was just like you're not um and i couldn't go anyway because i have a chronic illness diagnosis so they wouldn't take me mm. so yeah but when i when i got to high school i was like i think i just want to write stories about all these different perspectives mm. of people like i don't think i actually want to be a marine i think i just watched zero dark 30 and was like this seems fucking cool oh yeah like the camaraderie okay. yeah so i was like so that's when i looked up best film schools in the country found florida state toured it and then the, right before I went, like the year before, Barry Jenkins had won the Academy Award for Moonlight. Mm, okay. um, and so I was the next class to enter the school after he won that. So his picture was like all over the school. And like when I toured it, they were like, Barry Jenkins went here. Like, did I have you seen Moonlight? And I hadn't seen Moonlight at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. I was late watching okay. it. Um, but after that tour, like I went and watched it and fell in love with it. Like I cried. But yeah, so I was like, I was like, if I get in the Florida State, I'll go to Florida State. But my first choice was NYU Film School. I was so jealous and still am jealous to everyone who I meet here in New York now. He's like, yeah, I go to NYU. Like, I'm in the film school. I'm like, you're living my dream. How much money is that? It's a lot of money, especially for out of state. And I'm not a good test taker, so I did not have scholarship money. I I was not a 27. I just remember my mom being like, you could have done better. (laughs) (laughs) I hate when parents say that and you're like, you don't know me because I know I couldn't have done better. (laughs) My mom probably still remembers my score to this day. Like, I could probably text her right now and she would tell me. Um, but yeah, I was like, I, I averaged, like I wasn't a smart test taker or anything. 
so yeah, I went to Florida State, um, met some of my best friends that I have, um, who are all mostly all here now. I was a writing and producing specialist. Okay. But I learned so much there. Watched so many movies, like got to talk, you know, like intellectually about how things work, about theory and all that stuff. Um, after our documentary semester, I actually went to Ohio, drove to Ohio to film mm-hmm. a documentary. And then I got really sick after that trip, was in the hospital for like a month, and the school wasn't set up to accommodate me virtually at the time so they said mm. so they were like florida, florida state florida state yeah so like you have to leave or you can wait a year to come back and we'll save a spot for you but i wasn't trying to be out of school for a year so i dropped out left and then took six months off to recover um because i was like trying to get on the wait list to get a lung transplant mm-hmm. that didn't end up happening like a new medicine came out much better now and then i was like okay I'll stay in state. What are the best schools mm. for writing or filming? Atlanta. Um, and then Emory was like a prestigious school, and my dad worked there, so I could go for cheaper. Um, and he was like, "If you get in, like you can, you can go." And I was like, "Okay." Applied, got in, but didn't want to study film because they don't have a great film program there. So I was. So this is this is where the shift came. Because I was like, I want, I know I want to be a writer specifically, mm-hmm. not necessarily locked into the genre of film or the medium. So Emory had a really good playwriting program, like yeah. one of the top in the country. I did theater in high school, tech theater. I was like, I would love to write. For, I just want to see what it is. Yeah. So I had one of the best professors I've ever had, Kimberly Bellflower, was my teacher at Emory. And that playwriting class really opened my eyes to what it could be. Outside of, again, Shakespeare and, like, all the mm. older plays where, like, the language is outdated. Or, yeah. And I fell in love with it. Was really good at it. My professor was like, "You, I think you should do this full time or try to. And I was like, okay, let, let me see what it is. And I loved it because I started in poetry, right? And playwriting is very poetic in the way it structures its stories and its mm. language um, and dialogue. Because it's a much more, like, verbal-heavy art form or medium mm. than it is visual, like film is. So there's less, like, realism to it, but that also gives Correct. it a certain kind of magic. Correct. Yes, it's very much like people do not speak in real life the way they speak in plays. It's much more beautiful. It's much more metaphor-heavy. and mm. um, Language we don't really use, I mean, I don't know, unless you're a poet or a writer. So, yeah, and I loved it because it was it blended poetry and film and storytelling in a way... It just really made sense to me. Mm. It really made sense to me, and it felt really good. So I fell in love with it there. Like wrote a play in high school that did really well um, at the Kennedy Center in D.C. Um, and then I moved to New York right after I graduated. I was only at Emory for two years, and I was like in my parents' basement okay. because of COVID. Because I transferred to Emory in January of 2020. Oh, so I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I had two months on campus. It's wild that at some point in the future, young people will hear like, "Oh, I did this thing in the beginning of 2020," and our generation will be like, "Oh," yeah. and then they'll be like, "Why? Like, why, why are you acting that, 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 that way?" Like, yeah, it's a fucking pandemic. <laughs> it's a pandemic. Literally, like, I remember I got into the school, had two months on campus. I was like, "Oh my god, I hate this." Cause I didn't know anyone. Oh, okay. I didn't know the campus. And I was the only transfer student that year. Because mm. they normally don't accept transfers, but I had a special situation. So they were like, so no one showed me the ropes. Okay. I was like a loss. I felt like I was a freshman again. Oh, it was so depressing. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was so bad. Um, and then I met some friends and it was good. But then I remember 
I had a car because I was older than everyone else mm-hmm. because I, I was a transfer. And um, these people who I didn't really know really well, they were in one of my classes. They were like, hey, do you want to come to the beach with us in North Carolina this weekend? And I, if I, it was because I had a car. Like, they just needed me to drive. They invited you because you had a car <laughs> and otherwise they wouldn't have been able to go? Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know. They've become some of my good friends now, so maybe not, but... They were, I was like, why'd you love me? They were like, well, you had a car. I was like, yeah, that's true. I did. Um, (laughs) So it was so sad. But literally on our way back from that trip, we got the call. We saw the news and got the call from the university that they were shutting down. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Because it was, it was, so you were driving back and you're like, I guess we don't need to go back. Yeah. We stopped at a Waffle House and we were like all i remember this very clearly we were wow. all sitting on tables and we were like what is going on like why are they closing and it was spring break so they just extended our spring break mm. and then of course it got suspended Thank longer God. then i finished that degree above my parents garage what a modern artist's origin <laughs> story <laughs> okay so you had a play that was at the kennedy center yeah yeah um for all the strange boys who didn't get to grow up could you talk a little bit about that and what the story is yeah what that experience was like sure so oh we're about to get uh deep in this question um that play was written for a playwright in class my senior year at emory we could write about anything but we were like really learning craft and like you know story structure like so the play it's it's really it was a way for me to work through what i was going through at the time and it just happened to do well but it was a play about a kid who's in high school who didn't really want to graduate he like wasn't doing well in school didn't even know if he if that's what he wanted with his life and then it was about him and his two best friends who were like sort of like along on this journey with him and basically it's one of the characters she's a lesbian but no one knows and she like kisses one of the girls at school in the locker room someone sees it. it's like this very much like melodrama the high school melodrama mm-hmm. and that's a really good way to describe it actually um and it's this kid who like has a difficult relationship with his mom his dad was killed years ago and then he has a best friend who they're like really really close and like maybe they love each other but like maybe mm-hmm. it's not that melodrama as fuck <laughs> so i did that i wrote it it won an award at emory too actually like what best play of the year and then went to the kennedy center after end of the play the main character dies it's up to interpretation because he turns into a mime, like mm. a, a church mime. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they're like, they're all, throughout the whole play, like there's this Greek chorus of mimes who don't speak, but move with their body. And it's sort of just an outward representation of what was going on in his head. Mm. Um, so this very much like mask, like scary sort of thing. And he ends up dying. Because I was going through, me not even wanting to graduate, because I had to switch schools, because it wasn't really my choice. And I didn't really like Emory all that much socially it just like wasn't for me and then also i had lost my best friend to suicide like a year before that i was grieving and going through this new school and didn't know anyone around me and it was just like a very like weird point in my sounds life. isolating it was very isolating yeah physically and emotionally mm-hmm. which was really tough so i wrote this play as a way to like try to work through these emotions that i was having and it was pretty good was it strange to have it be so well received because of the place that you wrote it from Yes, it really was, but it wasn't surprising because, like I said before, like it was what what's honest sells. Like I don't know, people love reality TV shows where like there's so much emotion and drama, and like movies that win the most awards are ones that are like very specific, a, a very specific feeling in someone's life. After some this year about a girl and her 
dad who's not around, but they're going on vacation together. Mm-hmm. And it's just like all these like specific memories. And so because it was so honest and there was a lot of me and my situation in this play, it was weird for it to be received because I was like, I didn't really write this for anyone else. But it wasn't surprising because I was like, I know a lot of people go through this specific thing. Do you have a favorite scene in it? Yes. My favorite scene, I think, and I think the best scene, um, I wrote it in literally, like I think, like two minutes because it was just like all there. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't really have to think about anything is when basically the um, main character um, and his best friend are like in his room eating pizza, listening to music. Um, and a Mac Miller song plays. Mm. And then this whole conversation ensues about death and like friendship and like all through the lens of like Mac Miller and his, the way in which um, he died in his life and like everything leading up to that. And then them talking about their own lives and Ricky was his character, Ricky's depression that he's going through and like his mental state. And it's just like, it's a really good scene because scene about these two boys' relationship in a lens where it's like, how much do you care about me? Like, they talk about mm. survival and, like, what if one of them left first? And, like, this, like, all this stuff that I think was really on my mind at the time. And so, yeah, it, like, and it goes through so many ways of emotions in that scene. Like, the beat, there are many beats of change. Um, and then it ends up with them crying on each other's shoulder. And then there was also anger and there was all, you know? It, but it started joyful. It started mm. with listening to Matt Miller. So there's a shift through and, many yeah. different emotions in one scene. Yes. I love that. I I love that about writing how like the notion that every scene should have an arc. And to me, an arc is just basically some kind of shift that is believable, believably expressed. Yeah. That play was so well received in many ways. It can be considered a coming of age story. Sure. Yeah. And you have expressed in the past, you're very interested in coming of age stories, body Mm -hmm. horror, cannibalism, like these various tropes that I think are like very powerful. Um, but in preparation for this interview, I was kind of like thinking about the coming of age story of the friends that I have. You're maybe one of like a handful of people I know that have gone through like a serious medical crisis. Mm-hmm. And it was like a big part of developing as a person. If I'm making a loose connection, I'm wondering how that experience factors into like your fascination with coming of age. Do you feel like the coming of age genre idealizes youth? Yes. I'll answer the, I'll answer the first and then go into the second. I'm interested in coming of age because I think I'm really interested in rewriting history, specifically rewriting my history. I like I, so the illness is cystic fibrosis, which is a lung disease that affects many other parts of my body. And growing up, I was told you won't live past 45. So that's what I always thought. Like I, and that sounds like you tell someone else that and they're like, oh, like, oh my God, that's so fucking horrible. But it was just my reality. Just like a I was, fact of your life. It was a yeah. fact of my life. I thought everyone was going to live till 45. You know, I like, not really, but like, I was like, it's not that big of a deal. And so growing up, like, I never really thought, like, I never really had to think about what I would look like when I was old or like saving for a 401k or whatever, mm-hmm. like all these things. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to have my fun. It's going to be a great life. I'm going to accomplish a few things and I'm going to die at 45. Like, yeah. I was like, that's dope. Like, I was like, cool. I would tell other people that their jaw would be on the like, floor. Oh They'd gosh. be like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Like, so it looks of pity. But it was just my reality. And of course it was hard, like, to grasp that. Like, I did have, like, lots of, like, crying sessions and stuff of, like, of just, like, dealing with my mortality. But it was just the fact of the thing. And so go to the hospital for at least two weeks at a time, twice a year, every year of my life, starting when I was four. So like hospitals were like a second home to me, really. 
is it a genre that idealizes youth and is this good or bad or is it kind of a mixed yeah, sort of yeah. thing in your mind? I'm interested in rewriting history because because of those hospital visits, right? And like the many times and not really building as strong connections in high school and middle school as I could because I would be the one who had to leave often. Mm-hmm. So I was always like out of the loop. And when you're that age, that's a huge deal. Yeah. Like you miss a day and so much has happened. That's like very true. Johnny has a new boyfriend and somebody got into a fight. Somebody got into a fight. Yeah. Like the principal, like, I don't know. So much happens and everything is such a huge deal. Which is also what I love about coming of age stories, right? Mm-hmm. So like rewriting history, like there's one there's a coming of age called Plan B. Um Oh, is that the road trip movie? The road trip movie. With Barbie Ferreira. Yeah. Uh I feel like there's two different teen road trip movies that have come out recently. About us yes, about this specific thing too, actually. Oh dang. Is it the one with the girl from Euphoria? No, so it's a, basically a movie where um they like have this party in high school. Um, and one of the girls has sex with a guy at the party. Um, I forget why, but um, uh, they like do it or whatever. And then after they realize the condom fell out, like the condom fell out like inside of her. So that's pull out and she was like she's freaking out. Oh my god, the guy leaves like an asshole. And then the next morning she's like, I don't know if it happened, but I want to get Plan B mm-hmm. just in case. But they're in a state that doesn't sell Plan B, so they road trip. They steal their mom's car and road trip to the state over mm-hmm. to try to buy a Plan mm-hmm. B pill before the time frame runs out. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, thinking now, like, sure, it could have been a big deal, but it also couldn't. But, like, to them, it was the biggest deal in the world. Yeah. There's so many possibilities ahead of you. And then when something comes up that can drastically change your life and your future. Yeah. It's almost like it's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that matters, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it consumes your whole world. And so when I was growing up and, like, you know, like, I would have to leave for two weeks and then come back. It was the biggest thing in the world because missing two weeks of school is, like, Mm -hmm. missing half the year. And of course, like now, like you miss go, I'm like, whatever, like I'll see you in two weeks. But then it's like, this matters. And I think because the stakes are so high, that age, you care so deeply and so much. It teaches us a lot mm-hmm. about where we are now and where we are going. That's how I fell in love with coming of age stories. Like when I was in the hospitals, I would like go down to the hospital library mm-hmm. and check out like DVDs and VHS tapes mm-hmm. and just watch movies all day. Because I had nothing else better than that. Okay. You know, I was sitting in a four-roomed wall. I would do my school assignments, and then i just watch movies. What were some of the movies you remember watching? Spy Kids, Chalkboard and Lava Girl. Mm. Um, these, like, fantastical, like, coming-of-age stories. Page Master? No. Um, I watched Air Bud. I watched Red Dawn, that movie with Spy Josh, movie? Josh Peck. Oh, yeah, okay. Remember? It's like yeah. a remake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I loved that movie. Um, Finding Nemo. Like, and so, yeah, I kind of fell in love with movies there. This is a deviation of another question I have. As someone that loves coming-of-age movies Mm. and the influx of sick teen, sick person coming-of-age movies, do you have a a certain kind of perspective on that genre? Like, do you... you, Do you you, you ever wish to write a film in that category to kind of... Is there, like, a morbid fascination with young, sick people, or is it... A fixation because maybe it's like our entryway into processing death. You asked me this question earlier. I think coming of age stories idealizes youth except sick kid stories because mm. no one wants to be a sick kid. Even if you like feel for them, you're like, oh my God, that's so sad. Um, I just think that's really funny. Sick kid movies, I never really, I never really was a fan of them. It just felt too close to me. You know what I mean? And it felt, 
I was like, I didn't need to read them because I was literally living it. I was living it. I do want to do a sick kid story one day, though. I do. What would it be? Uh, I think it would have so much <laughs> magical realism in it. <laughs> I don't know why I'm like, no. I'm like, kid with the cancer on the Titanic. I don't know. But I'm like, I should have. It's fucked up. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe with my uh, fascination with cannibalism, it'll be like a patient who like starts eating people. He has to eat people to stay alive. <laughs> you know I, mean? I don't know okay. i don't know like if i was being genuine because oh, yeah with so with bad. sick kid movies it's it's like in a way it demands so much of their time because i'm very interested in you know with a chronic illness or like anyone a kid who has a disease or whatever you don't really have control over your body right you mm-hmm. can't control that aspect so i love characters who try to control their lives in other ways mm. um even if it's self-destructive mm. right it's like if i'm gonna die i'm gonna die because of because of me not because of something else yeah and just that yeah. lack of control and trying to take it yeah back, that is like know? an interesting i guess thematic thread throughout a lot of the like sick kid movies i've yeah. seen like the cure the fault in our stars like in the fault in our stars and specifically good. with that one what was the character's name who angela elgort played Gus, Augustus Waters. Augustus Waters. Yeah, his, his obsession Waters. with Oblivion. Yes, with Oblivion. But the one thing I was thinking about recently, right, we were just talking about, when he holds the cigarette between his lips, and Hazel Grace gets so mad at him. I actually watched this scene yesterday, and she goes, what are you doing? Like, you're blah, blah, blah. Like, you're sick, and you're smoking cigarettes. Like, you don't even deserve to have your life order. I don't know if she says all that, but it's like she's very angry Not at him. being able to breathe sucks. Not being able to breathe sucks, and it does. Like, I, I did relate with that line when I read that book. But he's like, I don't smoke it because if I put it between my lips, but don't give it the power to kill me, to kill me. I'm like, maybe this is fucked up, but I'm like, smoke it. Like oh. if you're gonna die. Let why, it be why because deny of something your, you did. Why deny yourself? Why oh, did, okay, okay. Also, why deny yourself? But also, like, you're taking the you're, you're taking, taking the control, control back. Of, of why you mm, leave. Yeah. Instead of being forced to leave. Yeah. Because I've been in many spaces where, because I got sick, I had to be forced to leave these spaces. Mm-hmm. I would much rather choose to leave than be forced to leave. Yeah, it's like, now yeah. I'm just floating through life and I don't really have any agency. Yeah. So smoke wow. the cigarette, Augustus Waters. That's such an intense, <laughs> but I think beautiful distinction to make. Because I feel like in coming of age, it's like young people are trying to gain control of their lives and their mm-hmm. desires. Exactly. But when it's coming of age through like a disease or illness or sickness it's like you're literally trying to control the literally the uncontrollable uncontrollable. or or seemingly you're trying to control what is controllable in a situation that is largely outside of your control and so it's if the overarching situation is fucked what do you do in like the 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 other situations exactly that you can yeah it's just just an outward representation of everything that's going on on the inside of them like even kids coming of age who aren't sick like they're dealing with the same things yeah so that's why i'm really interested and that's also why i'm really interested in cannibalism films Mm. Mm -hmm. in that sort of body horror because it is also an outward representation of what sometimes they're going through when they're growing up I'm glad you mentioned cannibalism because uh, um, for those that don't know, um, when I interview friends on my podcast, I will put you on blast in some kind of way. A few days ago, once again, Will and I were watching another film. I was so excited. I looked over to my friend, been asleep for 15 minutes, and we were watching Bones and All. Um, And I bring that up, one, to shame you, but one, when we were watching it, I really was trying to view different lenses and i feel like watching that movie again what i was interested in is how 
And maybe these are just like the phrase, the brutality of youth and coming of age and how so much of the intensity of how coming of age is expressed is through this lens of like heightened emotion. Everything is intense. Watching Bones and All, I realized like, oh, there's the intrinsic brutality to Mm -hmm. these characters coming of age and being on the margins. But then these moments of coming of age or romance or desire are put alongside literal cannibalism. And so I was thinking about how there is this kind of brutality that I feel like we're trying to reach for in coming of age stories with how the emotions are expressed and also how cannibalism is like another metaphor for that. When you have nothing ahead of you, it's like you kind of want everything all at once. Mm. And and what if yes, that everything exactly. that you want is taboo or... Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering what you think of that. In a literary sense? Okay. <laughs> First of all, I love Bones and All. I had seen it three times already before I fell asleep. Oh, uh, so. okay. That helps. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me feel better. Coming of age with an illness does, it translates well to any horror film you see, right? Coming of age that, like the movie, uh, The Untamed is one that I really like. Mm. And Raw is an, the cannibalism one that I really love on um, the French film. And I think... Two things. One, desire, right? Cannibalism is just like a very like extreme version of desire. Like you have like an itch and a burn to do this extreme thing so much that nothing stops you. Like literally killing another person and eating another person. It really is like when you're growing up, you do really ha- you're discovering every feeling for the first time. I saw a TikTok one time where it was there was like this parent parenting and this toddler like had an anger fit and threw his cup across the room and like broke a glass. Some, like, some people, like, like, your first reaction is anger, right? It's like, oh my, in shock. But these, like, little beings of children are discovering the world and themselves and their emotions for the first time. Like, try to think of the first time that you experienced what anger felt like. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a weird feeling in your body to have. And if you react the way in which anger tells you to react, of course it's going to be extreme. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like growing up, like we have these, and we also have like strong desires of things we love or things we want, like your first crush, like your first time being horny or like your first, like these feelings that like we don't, we had never experienced before coming on at one time is overwhelming. And so I think one cannibalism shows that in an extreme way of like these desires that are hard to make sense of. And then two, just like the body horror aspect of it, mm. right? It's like my body is behaving in this weird way and I need to do this weird thing. And it's really hard to control it. And I feel like I have no control. Yeah. Um, and the characters always have a lack of control in other areas of their life besides mm. that they're just cannibals, right? Mm, that is a good point. Um, like whether it's like a new space or like in, so in Bones and All, it was like they were traveling across the country. They were never stable, right, in any aspect. And then in Raw, she was at a new school. She went to veterinarian school for the first time. And it was like mm. her going from high school to college. Green Inferno. Green Inferno. <laughs> I have not seen that one in forever. That's honestly one of my favorite movies. Really? And it's because it shocks people <laughs> so much when they see it. I love a movie yeah. that you can show to someone and they're like, this is fucking bonkers. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's like, a, it's a great literary tool to use to explore these things that are more nuanced to talk. I watched Infinity Pool a day or two ago. Yeah. And... In some ways, I was kind of thinking of that film in terms of like a cannibalistic sense and not necessarily in the sense of like you're literally another human being. But I mean, I'm just going to spoil Infinity Pool for people that are listening to this. (laughs) It's basic. I mean, I guess I won't spoil all of it, but it's about this couple that goes to resort and the main character is Alexander Skarsgård. He meets these people that 
have helped this local government be able to make body doubles, mm-hmm. and these body doubles play a role throughout the film. I was thinking of it in terms of cannibalism as not like these characters are devouring human beings, but they're literally creating versions replications of themselves, of themselves and killing them in in order for them to be destroyed. I relate that to cannibalism in the sense it's like it's it's self, it's, yeah. it's yeah it's it's, it's self destruction in a way yeah it's self destruction it's the consumption of something that is a reflection of yourself, of yourself yeah and so I'm wondering if late stage capitalism climate change <laughs> existential collapse the recession the pandemic all the fucked up things that are happening okay, Smith. Are, are they contributing to this sort of human fascination with what what would it mean for mm. us to consume ourselves? What would it mean for us to kind right, of right? Because we're literally cross this destroying final our frontier, right? Because yeah. yeah, we lead up with climate change. It's all human error. Yeah. So it is self destruction in a way. That's a really good question. I think I'm just always interested in the self and the ways in which we have control or don't. Mm. Because it's it's not even, and I guess maybe I'm just thinking of all these other examples. But one movie I love is um, is it Brothers with Jake Gyllenhaal? With the giant spider at the end. What? What's it called? Let me look at it. Oh yeah, it's called Brothers. It's a 2009 movie with Jake Gyllenhaal. And that's about a body double type shit. Really? And I mean, I, I just feel like some part of me looks at media and I'm like, what is the utility of this kind of thing yes. that's entering our mainstream kind of conception of story? And I feel like... cannibalism so- is entering into the mainstream, I think. Yeah. I think there will be more over the next few years. I mean, because recently you've had, what, Fresh? With Daisy Edgar Jones. Yellow Jackets. Is that cannibalism? They get stranded. <laughs> oh, I guess you're right. Okay, so Yellow Jackets um, and Bones and All. Raw was 2016, um, but it did really well in the US. The Black Christmas remake. <laughs> remember the, he eats yeah, the, the yeah. cookies. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I don't know. I think, I think it's interesting in the mainstream, and I think it is a helpful way in which to talk about these things, mm. if you can handle the blood. So you're just talking about Raw. Movie about a French girl entering a veterinary school and she's a vegetarian. How do you feel the movie explores the animalism or the wilderness of coming of age? If that is like a, an exploration in it. And, and here are a few other questions for me to like, have you chew on. If something comes natural to someone, can it be taboo? I thought the first one, the cheap answer is veterinarian school and all the animals and the way in which they behave. There's this one scene in the movie freaks me out every time and it's not because it's bloody it's just uncomfortable like a horse is when i guess when they're about to be killed or like when they're having surgery the horse is like strapped it's awesome it looks like bdsm for horses basically mm. and like there's like uh an eye thing over mm. the horse's eyes to keep its eyes open like um clockwork orange type and it's just making these noises the whole time because it's so uncomfortable mm. And there's a doctor there who has like gloves on his hands and he has like a sharp tool. And so that image is already scary because it's like one, this horse is in pain and it's two, what is this person about to do to this horse? Mm -hmm. Um, And nothing bad happens to the horse in the scene, but you're always on edge and anxious about what will happen. It builds attention. It builds attention. That's a scary image. And in the relationship to coming of age, like sometimes you do feel like you don't know what's happening. It's very scary. Mm. Because you're in situations that you don't know, especially with if you have an illness, like you're literally on an operating table with people with sharp things that mm-hmm. like maybe you don't know what's going to happen to you. And then the other part of like wildness in the movie is literally her figuring out she's like a cannibal. Because before she eats anyone, also stop here if you don't want it spoiled because it's a really good movie, but 
she eats raw meat before she ever eats a human. Mm. Like she's like comes home from a party drunk, like many people coming of age in high school, college, early twenties, late twenties have done. And you're hungry. Like you want a chopped cheese or you want mac and cheese or whatever. Mm. But she's hungry, so she stumbles home in her apartment and she's alone. She opens the fridge. There's no food, but there's like raw chicken and steak meat. And she just like fucking bites into it. And that's like a great image because I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. I've never been as hungry as to want to eat raw chicken and make yeah. it salmonella. You know what I mean? But it's a very specific image to show how strong her hunger and desire was. Yeah. Right. And her, she was this deep new emotions um, of like having this desire to eat raw flesh. Yeah. I wrote an essay in this queer horror movie anthology. Mm-hmm. And I think I might have mentioned the movie to you before. It's called Good Manners. It's a Brazilian film. And I'm kind of mentioning this because it's about a a dark-skinned woman becomes a nanny for like this rich sort of daughter of some wealthy family or whatever. And the woman she becomes a nanny for is pregnant. They have this sort of lesbian relationship. You figure out that the pregnancy is kind of weird. And then you basically figure out that the baby is a, a werewolf. And, <laughs> and I guess, spoiler alert, um, and I guess I'm relating, I think I love that movie because one, in horror, I love the idea of like reluctant. And in that movie, there's also like a thread of that where it's like, you can tell throughout parts of it that the woman who's pregnant wants the kid, but then it also terrifies her. And then yes. the, the werewolf kid ends up with the nanny and... If I'm looking at why I like some of these these genres is when we explore the taboo in like a family structure or a community, especially with parents. Like I love in sick kid movies where yeah. like the parents break down and there's like this yeah. final reckoning where I feel like in good manners, literally when that nanny was like, I love this werewolf kid anyway. I was like, I wish my mom would love me like that. <laughs> and so it's just kind of fucked up in that sense where it's like, why is it that movies... I feel like it's way more believable when kids are confronted with evil and sinister things in a movie and they find something that's lovable in it or something that's like redeemable. Um, Something about that is like really interesting to me and interesting to navigate and write about these stories as adults. Yes. When you literally said earlier, you're trying to rewrite history. Rewrite history. And so it's, what does it mean to rewrite history through the lens of horror? Something about that, maybe if I'm answering my own question, maybe it's getting at like a deeper truth that the happy shit can't really say. Right. Yeah, I think that's so true. And then at the end of Raw, she eats raw meat or whatever, and then she ends up like having, comes home with this guy, one of her best friends who she falls in love with and starts making out with him and eats him, like literally like bites him. And he's like, well, what is going on? But then at the end of the movie, she goes home, she gets sent home and she's sitting at the table with her parents. And she's crying. She's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I have this thing inside of me. Like, I can't stop, right? Then her dad goes, lifts up his shirt, and he's totally scarred. Someone has bitten chunks of his chest out of him. And then her mom is a cannibal as well. It's genetic. Mm -hmm. Um, And her mom just feeds on the husband because Mm -hmm. they love each other. Girl, like, come up to your parents. Like, that's the ideal situation. You sit down, you tell your parents, like, you have this thing that's like, quote unquote abnormal like it's not whatever whatever you hear it's not right and then your parents are like oh we're the same as you mm. this deep connection of like wanting to be accepted and wanting to be made yeah that you know like that makes me what, think of breastfeeding like we literally take 
from our parents' bodies yeah. in order to sustain ourselves. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so what does yeah. it mean to like sort of reverse that in some way? And uh, right. yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. I have mine in the tank that I want to do one day and hopefully I can, but um, yeah, it's, I don't know. I'm really interested in that. Mm. And it's fun. I mean, it's yeah. scary. Yeah, yeah. Like the first time I saw Raw, I was at Florida State and I saw it for free at a screening they were having. And people were throwing up in their seats and in the aisles what and had babies. To leave. I know. Whatever. I was looking at everyone. It was during the horse scene I was talking about. I don't think I've literally seen a movie that made me want to throw up. Have you has that ever happened to you? Not yet. I mean I've I have movies where like my butthole clenches because I'm like oh. Yeah, but not to the point of like barfing or throwing. <laughs> yeah, I'm like yeah. what the hell? Like, I don't know. What's your favorite zombie movie? Zombie Land. Why that one? It's so funny. Oh. It has Jesse Eisenberg in it. What's your favorite non-funny zombie movie? <laughs> <laughs> um, non-funny? Oh, the funny ones are the best ones. Um, You're about to say Shaun of the Dead. I was, yes. <laughs> no, you can't answer with that one. <laughs> it's my podcast. <laughs> These rules are so fucked up. Um, uh, World War Z with Brad Pitt. Mm, okay, okay. I love that one. Mm, okay. Last few questions. You recently moved to New York. What advice would you have to other people your age that are interested in coming to New York and working in the same field as you? Um, Ooh, that's a good question. Because um, you're how many months in? I'm going on eight. It's just something you have to do. It's just really something you have to do um, and not think about too much. But I would say save some money, um, especially if you're going to the field that I'm going into. Save some money. No, I think you want to know at least one person here. It helped me to know some people mm-hmm. who are here already. Because I found work pretty quick, but that doesn't happen for everyone. Just do it. Just move up here. We'll go out, I would say. I meet, I meet a lot of people out, mm. like at bars and clubs. And you like get drunk here. Like, what do you do? What do you do? It's like, oh, I'm a film. Everyone in here is in film or is a writer. Like, it's a very creative city. So I made so many connections that way. I taught, I taught in networking class the other day at a university, and I talked about doing that last two questions for people that experience the stories that you want to tell what do you want them to leave with i want them to question everything they've been taught everything they've learned um that sounds huge and ridiculous but i think it's true i think i'm very interested in the process and the writing of exploring things and learning new things that we were taught were different i think and i think i want people to feel that because that's what i feel when i write I'm always learning something. I never start a project with knowing the answer. Mm. Um, I always say, like, I love writing how, like, a cat lives just in curiosity and chasing... Lots of sleep. Lots of, <laughs> no, really, really. No, seriously, lots of sleep, lots of self-care. <laughs> You're not, mostly nocturnal. <laughs> mostly nocturnal. But when I'm awake, like, I'm awake. Like, I annoy the fuck out of you. And, like, I push your plates off your cabinet tables. And, yeah, yeah you know. Very socially selective. Very, very social. I am very socially selective. Um, but, yeah, like, I will, I'd be curious about anything. And I think I love writing how a cat lives. And so when people read or watch or listen to my things... I want the curiosity to um, inspire them to also be curious, um, to throw everything they once knew out the window and um, try something else. Thank you for being on the Creative Hour. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun.